Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. KQED in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Rachel Myro in for Alexis Madrigal. Millions of Americans are leaving their jobs. Hundreds of thousands more are organizing for union representation or striking over wages, workplace safety, and corporate culture. Is this a short, sharp reaction to the pandemic, or is this something bigger? American workers are now flexing their muscles for the first time in decades, wrote former Labor Secretary Robert Reich in a recent op-ed calling this a national general strike. Well, of sorts. We'll dig into it this hour on Forum right after the news. This is Forum. I'm Rachel Myro in for Alexis Madrigal. Consumer demand for all sorts of products and services is spiking as the pandemic loosens its grip on the U.S. The stock markets are going gangbusters. Schools are back in business. So why are employers, big and small, having such a hard time finding and keeping workers? Labor is having a moment, you might say, even though many of the individual efforts are proving unsuccessful against big, heavily capitalized companies. Disorganized or organized, American workers now have bargaining leverage to do better, writes former Labor Secretary Robert Reich, who joins us today to talk about the way many Americans appear to be rethinking our working lives post-pandemic. Robert Reich, thank you for being here today. Well, good morning, Rachel. Thank you for asking me. Let's talk about that bargaining leverage you were talking about or writing about in The Guardian recently. For instance, healthcare. We've seen labor actions over COVID-19 protocols, staffing and pay. Organized labor appears to be busy organizing, but is it winning? A very good question. We don't really know over the long term. There are many strikes in America right now, an unusual number of strikes across the board, not only in the service industries like nursing, but also uh, in big, you know, sort of capital intensive businesses like John Deere. Uh, But whether those strikes result in success and higher wages and better working conditions Uh, Well, time will tell. We do know that American employers desperate to find workers have increased wages over the past year by about an average of a dollar an hour. That may not sound like very much, uh, but it cumulates, it's cumulative. And a dollar an hour is important. 
Uh, and the trend is, to me at least, given my values, it's in the right direction. Uh, the bottom half of the workforce in terms of their earnings uh, has not had an increase in wages adjusted for inflation now uh, for uh, about 40 years. Uh, in fact, if you look, went back 40 years, the typical male worker in America who was on an hourly wage, and again, most people are actually on hourly wages, was earning about what he is earning today, adjusted for inflation. Uh, meanwhile, the economy has grown dramatically. So if the question is, do American workers deserve a raise, uh, the question, <laughs> there's no question, they do. Uh, it's all a matter of bargaining leverage. It's a matter of power. And what we're seeing, Rachel, coming out of this pandemic is much more labor working power, worker power than we've seen coming out of anything since, uh, I suppose the, the best analogy is World War II. Well, that's going back a long time, though, <laughs> right? I mean, and and you see, for instance, I'm I'm going to pick out something that that I've covered as a tech reporter. Amazon, um, especially thanks to its warehouses and its its shipping, um, has become one of the biggest employers in the United States and in California as well. Uh, and we've seen Amazon, um, you know, upping its hourly wages, but but not really. Uh, appearing to change attitudes about trying to squeeze the most productivity out of its warehouse workers with algorithms uh, to the extent where, you know, yeah, maybe you're getting an extra dollar an hour, but you're, you're giving up the health of your back uh, if, you, if you stick with Amazon. Are, are the menu of options really improving for, for working class Americans? Uh, well, I, I probably not, Rachel, and I don't mean to be a downer about this, but uh, it's very easy to look at the strike activity and to look at the very high quit rate. That's something else we ought to be talking about because we've uh, almost never seen in this country the number or percentage of workers who are quitting their jobs. Uh, and we have a very, very kind of almost record low what's called labor participation rate. So that's the percentage of workers who are in jobs or working age people in jobs or who are looking for jobs. Very, very low right now. So if you look across the board, you might say, well, something very dramatic is happening. And I do agree something very dramatic is happening. But whether that changes ultimately the power relationships between most workers and most employers is uh, is very debatable. And, and I'm on the side that I don't see it fundamentally changing anything. What changes do you think the, uh, the giant infrastructure bill the Biden administration is pushing might have on this conversation, if you will, between employers and employees? Uh, or, or maybe not. Maybe, maybe it's not likely to change much of anything. In the short term, anything that stokes demand for workers and that uh, $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill, and if it's ever passed, the uh, 1.4 or 5, or the number keeps changing, social infrastructure bill, both of those are going to increase the demand for workers across the board. And that, generally speaking, is always good for American workers. So you have just, a, just looking at supply and demand, you've got pent-up demand by American consumers for all sorts of goods and services they didn't really have a chance to get during the pandemic. And on the other side of the equation, you've got uh, employers who are desperate for workers in order to satisfy that pent-up demand. 
Uh, and if you add to that additional spending by the government, that is good for workers. That, uh, that creates even additional demand uh, on the top of uh, constrained and limited supply. So in the short term, that means higher wages for many, many workers. It means better working conditions. It means better contracts. Uh, but uh, who exactly is going to benefit? I don't know. The kind of Rachel, the kind of workers that you spent a lot of time reporting on, uh, high-tech workers, particularly knowledge-intensive workers, uh, they are in a very good position. They have been for years. They're going to continue being a, in, to be in a very good position. But whether the Amazon warehouse workers uh, are going to get much better off uh, because of this labor shortage is, uh, is a good question. You know, uh, it, it, I've seen people commenting online, corporate America wants to frame this as a labor shortage, um, you know, but as you've written, uh, there's another way to frame it, which is that, you know, we, what we've got is a, a living wage shortage, but also a hazard pay shortage, a child care shortage. That's a big one for women who are participating in the economy or perhaps these days not so much. A paid sick leave shortage, a health care shortage. I mean, um, we we are really talking about whether it's possible to, to have a decent life working in America today. Exactly. And I think what's happened is that the demise of organized labor, I mean, today, uh, only 6.2% of private sector workers are unionized. Now, that's down from 33% in the 1960s. Uh, so you don't have much power. I mean, unions have very, very little power in terms of demanding changes. They have a lot of power right this moment in particular industries, given the imbalance between supply and demand. But over time, whether unions really will, will come back, whether unions will provide workers that kind of power to overcome uh, the real shortages, and as you said, and I, I well, I did write, uh, what's really happening is not a labor shortage per se, it's that workers are demanding much more, and they, I think, deserve it. They deserve a living wage. They deserve hazard pay, child care, paid sick leave. We're the only country, rich country in the world that doesn't provide these kinds of things, and also health care. Uh, and the pandemic, I think, helped open people's eyes, Rachel, to one other aspect of all of this. And that is that, you know, we don't work to live. Uh, we, we certainly don't live to work. Uh, a lot of people are reassessing their lives right now. Now, I don't have any good data on this. We don't, uh, the, the economics profession, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, nobody collects data on uh, how people feel about their lives and their work at that level of kind of existentialism. Uh, but from my free-floating focus group, and I do a lot of talking to a lot of people across the country, very informally, uh, I've detected a big change um, and I don't know quite how to talk about this, except simply to say that a lot of people are reevaluating work and reevaluating re their lives. They, they don't want to, um, you know, they're, they're saying to themselves, uh, life is short. I mean, we see this during the pandemic. We are reminded of it. Uh, we don't want to spend our lives doing nothing but thinking about working or worrying about working or, or having 
uh, hours that are uh, simply unpredictable. Uh, we don't want employers to be treating us like they have been treating us for so many years. I, I think all of this kind of reevaluation also lies behind what we're now seeing. We're talking with Robert Reich, professor at the Goldman School of Public Policy at UC Berkeley and former Secretary of Labor under President Bill Clinton about worker discontent and the future of American labor. Have your feelings about your job changed uh, since the advent of the pandemic? What kind of benefits or policies would keep you at your job today? Give us a ring and join the conversation. We're at 866-733-6786. Now that you're ready with the phone, 866-733-6786. Or you can get in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. You can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. You know, Professor, I would say unions are are not a monolith, but, but we've seen corporate America pushing unions back on their heels, so to speak, for decades now. But but we seem to be in a moment where there's a kind of ground-level, widespread discontent. It's almost like like individual Americans themselves are, are at the front edges of, of this conversation or this argument. Absolutely, Rachel. Uh, and again, you only look at the uh, the data came out just last week on the quit rate. Uh, now, we've never seen in this country a percentage of workers who are quitting their jobs, uh, as we are seeing now. Uh, now, many of them are finding new jobs. Uh, some of them are taking time off. Uh, we also see, as I mentioned before, a very, very low uh, rate of labor participation. Uh, people who are of working age, uh, they've decided for one reason or another to take some time off. Uh, and on top of that, we see the strike activity. Uh, and in many high-tech firms, uh, Rachel, I'm, I'm very interested. We see employees who are saying to their employers, you must change your ways uh, with regard to business practices. And that's something we're going to get right back to. Uh, we're talking with Robert Reich here on Forum. Stay with us. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
You're listening to Forum. I'm Rachel Myro, and we're talking with Robert Reich, former Secretary of Labor under President Bill Clinton. I say we're talking with him because you are welcome to join this conversation and put your questions, put your challenges uh, to Reich today. Give us a ring at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can, of course, email your questions to Forum at kqed.org, and we are monitoring our accounts on uh, Facebook and Twitter. Uh, so so you were just talking there, um, Robert Reich, about, um, uh, about the tech universe. And one of the things that we have seen uh, in terms of the way big tech has evolved, especially here in the Bay Area o- over recent decades, is is we're no longer talking about, you know, everybody at Google having the same kind of access to the cafeterias and the masseuses and <laughs> right the, the free dry cleaning. There, there are different layers. There's a hierarchy. There are people who work not directly for Google, but for subcontractors. And, and when I say Google, I, I mean, we're talking a lot of companies now. Many, many American workers find themselves not directly employed by a company and therefore, you know, at, at less of a, at a disadvantage in terms of, of pressing for greater worker rights. Uh, yes. And the move by companies to contract out more and more worker, uh, more and more of their work, does create a much more rigid hierarchy because many of these independent contractors are not entitled to any labor protections, uh, Rachel. They, they don't get a minimum wage. Uh, they don't get necessarily, uh, they're not eligible for workers' compensation, for injury. Uh, they don't, or they're not covered by OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. Uh, they really are, many of them, on their own in a kind of a, uh, a labor system that predates uh, the 20th century. Well, you know, but you could also say that this reflects a choice or a lack of choice on the part of labor regulators at the at the state and federal levels. Uh, well, uh, well, if you look at uh, what Lyft, for example, and Uber did uh, with the uh, California legislature, they they kind of put something on the California ballot, uh, which uh, created a a. a free ride, if you will, for uh, Uber and Lyft and other organizations, other uh, major employers who wanted to move their workers off of their employment status and treat everybody as contract workers. Uh, Well, the California legislature didn't want them to do that, uh, and there had been some litigation that prohibited them from doing that. But what did they do? Well, they spent $200 million, and they got it on the ballot, and they persuaded enough people to vote their way, uh, and, uh, and, and that's, that's, that's a political choice, but it is using their, their power. I think uh, there is fundamentally, Rachel, here, some question here, many questions of power, and I want to go back to this theme. Uh, because we don't talk about it nearly enough in our society. Uh, when we're talking about employers and employees, particularly big businesses, uh, and uh, what's happening to the relationship between big businesses and their employees, there has been, over the last 40, 50 years, a fundamental shift in power in America. Uh, 50 years ago, most American employees had more power, either directly through their unions 
uh, or indirectly through a kind of uh, an accepted social contract post-World War II. Uh, employees were treated better. They were considered to be a part of uh, uh, the, the, the social contract in the sense that employers would not and could not and should not take advantage of them the ways that employers have since the late 70s, early 1980s. Uh, uh, we built in those three decades after the Second World War the world's biggest uh, middle class. Uh, they, we had never seen anything like it. it. It kept our economy and society going. It, it built our entire... Uh, sort of uh, post-World War I understanding of how our economy works and how our society should work. All of that was reversed in the late 70s, early 1980s. And what we're seeing now uh, is perhaps, perhaps, now I, it's a big perhaps, the beginning of a reaction against those years in which power was so uh, predominantly in the hands of big employers. Well, on that moderately hopeful note, the phone lines are lighting up, Professor. So let's get busy answering caller questions and discussing uh, listener comments. Why don't we start with Dave in Sacramento? Hi, Dave. Can you hey, hear me? Hey, hi. You there? Yes. Hey, uh, thanks for taking my call. Um, just a comment here. Um, so I actually work in a... Uh, one of those kind of high-tech uh, industries, a lot of, uh, um, and my partner, they did not, uh, they worked at a retail position. Uh, this is pre, pre-pandemic. And when that pandemic hit, people in my kind of position were helping others and telling them, because we were, you know, we were, we were pretty uh, understanding that the pandemic's going to change the world, that this is the time that the world is shuffling. And, to, you know, you, you should position yourself in a place where when the pandemic, when you get to the other side, you're at a place where you want to be, whether it's your work or your, you know, it was kind of this is an opportunity to take away some of that taboo and shame away from quitting your job and moving, moving to a place that you want to do. It, 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 there's a silver lining in it. And I think some people are recognizing that now and seeing that. That's a great point, Dave. I mean, it, it does seem, Robert Reich, that, that uh, you know, a lot of people have used the opportunities presented by the pandemic to hit the reset button on their careers. I think that's right, Rachel. Uh, again, very, very difficult to measure. Uh, it's certainly true anecdotally. Uh, you know it from people who are working remotely, who now have many, many more options for where they work. Uh, and it's also clear to me at least, that in the wake of so much hardship and illness and death, people's priorities have shifted. Uh, And many people are willing to live maybe more simply, maybe slightly less materialistically. Uh, Perhaps people are saying to themselves, uh, you know, uh, life is more than work, and it, it has to be more than work. You know, interestingly, there was a similar phenomenon uh, I don't remember it, but I've read about it. After the two world wars, uh, World War II, you had right after World War II, uh, not only a great incidence, increase of strikes, uh, but also uh, anecdotally, a lot of people changed their occupations, they changed their ways of life, they, they, they thought differently about what they wanted from life. And perhaps we're seeing the same thing uh, as this pandemic hopefully winds down. 
Robert writes, workers are simply sick and tired of being sick and tired. Charles writes, is this mostly happening in the upper class? Is it the luxury of being able to reevaluate the role of works in our lives? Or is this also happening in lower uh, pay grades? It's a good question, and we don't know enough about it. Uh, but if you look at the strikes that are occurring, uh, some of them, many of them, are in relatively low-wage service areas. Uh, if you look at, uh, for example, well, go back. Uh, Rachel, you know about the, Bess the Bessemer strike in Alabama uh, the, in an Amazon warehouse. Amazon and Walmart are anti-union. They have been very virulently anti-union, uh, but they are finding themselves with more and more disruption from their hourly workers. Uh, and I think that's true of, well, nurses are going on strike. Nurses have, have been extraordinarily valiant uh, heroes and heroines during this uh, pandemic. Uh, and many nurses are either going on strike or they're leaving nursing altogether. Again, a, a kind of a, we don't know whether it's burnout or it's kind of a fundamental reckoning and reevaluation. Uh, you know, Curtis writes, uh, trickle-down economics never trickled down to workers. Job creators didn't create more jobs. This is the first time I can recall where labor has had such a strong hand in their own futures. What measures should progressive leaders implement to make sure this moment doesn't pass without real change? And I, I'm going to use that comment, uh, Robert, to, to go to one of our callers, uh, Sharon, in Napa. Hi. Can you hear me? We can hear you. Yeah. Okay. Um, my comments were there. You had a, a television program on KQED years ago called Building a Business. And two businesses that were, um, you know, highlighted was one was um, Ben and & Jerry's. And they, when they built their business model, they stipulated that the highest paid person in the, in the company, meaning the, the owners, would never make more than five times what the lowest paid person in the company was paid. And the other one was an international scout, or no, international harvester company um, that um, was a, um, they rehabbed engines and mo motor parts for the harvesters. And all the people in the factory were partners in, in profit sharing. And so they felt that, you know, the harder they worked, the more money they got. And they had a, a you know, a basis for really investing in their, their work. And these are two things that are just, I think, lost today because you've got these CEOs that are being paid $16 million a year for sitting at a desk and, and flying around in their co corporate jets and stuff. And the, the, the poor schlep at the bottom is only making five twenty five an hour, you know? So that's... Just a comment. I don't know if I want you want to respond well, to that. But th thank you for that, Sharon. I mean, I, I, I guess Robert. In in some ways, what Sharon is talking about, there are obviously some wonderful, thoughtful, progressive employers out there uh, in, in the U.S. operating today. But it does seem like the exceptions still manage to prove the rule. Yes, and unfortunately, uh, and I want to agree with Sharon. Uh, the exceptions really are in a sense, sad uh, exceptions. Uh, and many of them are finding it more and more difficult to 
maintain their businesses because they're at a competitive disadvantage uh, from all of the other employers and businesses that uh, are taking advantage of their workers, uh, squeezing their workers, not giving uh, pay increases, not being flexible in terms of scheduling, uh, not providing safe work environments. Uh, and this race to the bottom has got to stop. Uh, now, you asked me, Rachel, just before uh, Sharon got up, you took Sharon's call, uh, what can be done? And interestingly, uh, there are a number of measures right now before Congress. Uh, look at paid family leave, for example. I, 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 I'm interested in that issue just because uh, uh, the first law that I helped uh, implement under the Bill Clinton administration was family leave, family medical leave. We got 12 weeks of unpaid leave. Now, at the time, that was considered to be a great victory, uh, but a lot of people, and the pandemic has made it very clear, desperately need paid leave. We're the only country in the world, in terms of rich countries, that does not offer paid family and medical leave as a matter of law. Uh, now, the irony is that six months ago, Joe Biden uh, promised, and he thought he could get uh, 12 weeks of paid family leave. Uh, we had had the experience of the pandemic so, uh, so literally and so passionately and clearly. Uh, people wanted it and needed it. Uh, but he announced last night that he had to whittle that back to just four weeks of paid leave. Uh, and he wasn't even sure he could do that. He would, uh, that would be paid leave for, uh, for many years, uh, at least available. He could only make sure that it was available for one year. Uh, well, that, to me, is emblematic of what's happening right now in this country. Why are these things being whittled back? Why are these worker protections uh, in the current bill, in the social infra infrastructure, the Build Back Better bill, why are they being whittled back. There are many issues that Americans, particularly working Americans, care about. Childcare is being, uh, at this moment, as we speak, uh, Democrats are getting together and saying, well, maybe we can't afford childcare. Uh, working people need these things. Uh, and the great irony is that as we have, the quit rate is going up, people are, are, are on strike, many people are saying, uh, we really have to reevaluate re our jobs. Uh, in Washington, the move is in the opposite direction, uh, to provide less uh, help to many, many American workers. Well, I, it does seem like a lot of workers are starting to think, well, there's no, there's no way even a Democratic uh, administration uh, is, is going to save us from, from the, the abuses of the marketplace uh, in terms of labor. Uh, you, you think about it, right? Like, wh where is the regulation? Where is the taxation of companies uh, that stops them from using social services as a backstop to poor pay and benefits for their workforce while, while the folks in the boardroom walk away with billions? Uh, it, it, it seems to indicate that, you know, uh, as many people suspect, government is simply bought and paid for by big corporate interests. Uh, well, uh, sad to say, I mean, I, I want to make sure that anyone's listening to this understands that um, most of the Democratic senators in Washington are supportive of these reforms, uh, but there's not a single Republican senator who is supportive of these reforms. 
Uh, there are two Democratic senators that are holding everything up, uh, as far as I can tell, uh, Kirsten Sinema and also Joe Manchin from West Virginia. Uh, but nevertheless, these are things that American workers need. Uh, in California, there are better labor protections than in most other states. Uh, but still, we have millions of workers who are uh, treated as costs to be cut rather than as assets to be developed. Uh, and a modern, uh, enlightened business leader would think very differently about their workers. Linda asks, please clarify, how can people just quit their jobs or decide to take time off? How does one live or raise a family with no income? I understand all the reasons for this, but how does it work? Well, Linda, it's a very good question. Uh, the evidence we have suggests that during the pandemic, some workers managed to save. They didn't spend nearly as much. Uh, some workers did take advantage uh, in a positive way of some government aid and support, and they saved a little bit of that. Uh, also, there are others who have said to themselves, look, I, I don't want to live the kind of life I am living. I don't want to pay as much rent. I want to move to a a place that is cheaper to live. And, and I'm going to try to get a job that is uh, just, you know, just as good as the job I had before. Uh, so there's a lot of change going on right now. And I think, uh, Linda, my re response to your question is that although most Americans are still living paycheck to paycheck, and most Americans don't have the luxury of quitting their jobs or the luxury of deciding, uh, well, I want to change my life. Uh, what's happening now is maybe an indication of a bigger change in the future. You're listening to Forum. I'm Rachel Myro, and we're talking today with Robert Reich, professor at the Goldman School of Public Policy at UC Berkeley and former Secretary of Labor under President Clinton. We're talking about worker discontent and the future of American labor. Has your employer improved or changed its policies to retain workers? Are you a member of a union? Do you want your workplace to unionize? Call us. Join the conversation. 866-733-6786. 866-733-6786. Or get in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook or at KQED Forum. Or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. But whatever you do, stay with us. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Rachel Myro, and we're talking with Robert Reich today about uh, American labor, the past, the present, but also especially now as we round towards the end of the hour, the future. So with that, I, I want to go to one of our callers, Nan in Napa. Hi, Nan. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you uh, for taking my call. Um, I don't know that we've spoken about the future of robotics and its impact on um, work the workforce of the coming years, and I think that's another long-term, um, maybe it's a near-term threat or certainly a dynamic that will um, impact workers, and certainly um, if you could just speak to that. Um, Thank you so much. That's a the great set of questions there. Uh, Robert, any thoughts? I mean, we see not, not just robots, but also, it must be said, software seems to be uh, displacing an awful lot of people, or at the very least, just making their lives much more miserable. Uh, well, uh, undoubtedly, uh, robotics and artificial intelligence are coming into the workplace, and they are... Well, they're taking away, the good news is that they are likely, and they already have taken away uh, some jobs that people don't want to do. I mean, that are are, are pretty back-breaking and mind-numbing. But the long-term future uh, suggests that they will be taking away more and more jobs, or perhaps to make it a little bit more accurate. Uh, it's not that they're going to take away jobs. There's, there's still going to be uh, enough jobs for people to do, but the quality of those jobs in terms of pay is probably going to decline over time because of artificial intelligence uh, and robotics and um, all sorts of technology. Now, what's the future then? Uh, well, I'm a great fan of something called the universal basic income. Because it seems to me that we have no choice eventually in this country or really anywhere around the world uh, as artificial intelligence takes over more and more work, uh, we're going to have to have a way to provide people with uh, at least a, a basic income so that they can you know, not only satisfy their own needs and their family's needs, uh, but also keep the economy going. I mean, who's going to, you know, I mean, if you think about it uh, and you think about just a handful of owners of technology uh, dominating the entire economy, uh, that won't work because who's going to buy all of the things they have to sell? But, but Robert, in a world where, where even a Democratic administration can't push through paid family leave improvements, uh, how are we to imagine something like universal basic income becoming a reality? Ah, uh, Rachel, well, that's the interesting question, isn't it? I mean, do we have to wait until uh, the business community, and I'm talking about major CEOs, big businesses, the people who are now lobbying intensively against Biden's program uh, for working people in Washington, uh, do we have to wait until they see their enlightened self-interest in all of these reforms? Uh, that may take many, many years. 
Uh, or is it going to take some sort of a political revolution? Uh, or are we in store for, uh, heaven forbid, uh, another uh, kind of Donald Trump authoritarian strongman? I don't know. Um, if I were young today, I think I would, I'd be very excited because uh, none of this, what we're seeing now is not sustainable. Let's put it that way. Mm, it is hard to imagine a populist uh, who is unlike Trump, uh, not affiliated with big business getting to the White House. But that said, uh, Bill writes, with inflation running over 5%, it seems we are all, uh, see, it seems all we are seeing is the beginning of wage inflation catching up with consumer prices. How is that going to leave workers better off if inflation continues to increase? Uh, well, Bill uh, is exactly right with that question. If inflation continues to increase, or if we have accelerating inflation in terms of price increases, then those wage increases don't mean very much. I think that much of the price increase we're now witnessing, though, is temporary. It has to do with supply bottlenecks. Uh, it's, uh, you know, it, it, you have this great, great pent-up demand from consumers for all kinds of goods and services uh, after, let's hope, for after the pandemic or as the pandemic winds down. Uh, at the same time, you have around the world uh, just, a, and this, this happened really after the Second World War as well, uh, just it takes a while to get all of these supply chains back working. Uh, and if they're not back working, one little gap in the supply chain can make it impossible for all sorts of producers of all sorts of things uh, to actually uh, produce what they want. I mean, look what's happening with automobiles. Automobiles uh, are in great demand now, but the supply bottleneck seems to be in semiconductors, little tiny uh, semiconductors mostly coming from uh, places like Taiwan. Well, as long as you've got these supply bottlenecks, you're going to have price increases. But in six months' time, and I, that's my estimate, uh, we're going to see an end to these price increases. Supply will catch up with demand. We, we've got a, a comment now from one of your former students uh, at Harvard, I believe. Stuart writes, one of the issues not being discussed is globalization and international competition. They make it more difficult to provide the kinds of benefits prevalent with unions in the 1970s. This isn't true for all industries, especially high-margin tech, but it is true for lower-margin industrial companies. How does Dr. Reich feel a low-margin company can compete with rising labor costs and a highly competitive environment? Well, Stuart, it's good to have your question. And um, you obviously learned a lot in my <laughs> question. That's the kind of question I would have asked you. Uh, I think the, the evolution of the American workforce uh, shows that if you have a college degree you are in one world. You're essentially ready for uh, a, a lifelong uh, system of learning uh, and keeping up with what is, uh, is becoming a more technological intensive economy, uh, necessarily, because as Stuart suggests, uh, the rest of the world is filling in with a lot of the commodities, a lot of the lower tech kind of uh, work and all of the products and services that go with that work. Uh, but um, if you are not a college-educated person, you are likely to find yourself in the personal service sector of the economy. 
in which you are providing attention, uh, you are providing, uh, well, retail or restaurant or hotel or uh, surface transportation, uh, or you are uh, in a in a uh, in in healthcare. Now these are all critically important, uh, but these personal service occupations tend not to be terribly productive in terms of generating a great deal of revenue. Uh, so in really dollars and cents terms, these people in personal service sectors are not earning very much money and need, they are the ones in our economy who really need a union more than almost anybody else. Why don't we go to the phones again and Dale in San Francisco. Hi, Dale. Yes. Hi, thank you for waiting. Yep. Uh, My comment was just we keep talking about why these policies can't be enacted and I keep circling back to Citizens United and that decision and how you know, it, the, the corporations keep getting what they want because we're considering them people, too. Um, and it, it seems like cam- you know, the politicians aren't enacting what we need because they're not being they're not being empowered to do so by their corporate backers. Thoughts? Uh, well, Dale is absolutely right. I mean, everything connects to everything else. And um, big corporations have more political power than uh, ever before, at least since the 1880s, 1890s, what we used to call the Gilded Age. We're in a new Gilded Age right now. Uh, Big corporations and uh, the moneyed interests in America are calling many of the shots, uh, and they will continue to do so until and unless they are stopped. Uh, There is a bill in front of the Senate right now called the Freedom to Vote Act. Now, that act would provide some reform of campaign finance, Dale. And I hope you are behind it, and I hope people know about it, and I hope they are calling their representatives and senators and telling them to uh, make sure that that Freedom to Vote Act is is enacted. Let's take another call now. Charlie, also in San Francisco. Uh, Yes, thanks for taking my call. I'm um, sure Professor Reich is familiar with Arthur Schlesinger's cycles theory and that that every 40 years we swing america swings between uh private interest and public uh purpose and um i think we're long overdue now for this swing to public purpose i think which was black blocked by the blacklash to president obama that's my opinion i've seen um how the next generation is thinking differently. I teach as well, and uh, I just I wonder if this doesn't confirm your thinking about the change we now see. Uh, well, Charlie, public purpose. Yeah, I I, I certainly hope uh, that we see the great pendulum that Arthur Schlesinger wrote about uh, moving in the direction of public purpose and away from uh, kind of private. Uh, greed uh, and acquisitiveness. Um, But as you pointed out, we are way overdue uh, in terms of Arthur Schlesinger's 40-year cycle. Uh, We've been about 60 years now, and uh, we do, I think that what he thought of was that we, you know, that that the cumulative negatives, the downsides of uh, private acquisitiveness and uh, corporate overreach reach a point where there is no sustainability and uh, the 
country obviously shifts. Uh, as the country did, as America did shift after the Gilded Age, the first Gilded Age, we had a progressive era. Uh, and what gives me hope, honestly, is uh, as a teacher, as a professor, uh, not only at Berkeley, I mean, I, I do guest lecturing around the country, and I am so encouraged by the generation of young people I'm now teaching. Uh, I've been teaching on and off for 45 or 50 years. The people who I am now teaching are the most committed and determined young people I've ever come across in my teaching career. They are determined to change America, heal America, make America work, improve democracy, and make sure there is prosperity for everyone that spread broadly. Now, they may not, they may not actually succeed, but they're going to fight for it. And that makes me, well, makes me optimistic. But now, you mentioned the, the first Gilded Age, Robert, but to my mind, and you may correct me here, I believe what brought that to an end were arguably a couple of guys you might call traitors to their class. Teddy Roosevelt, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And this is like decades after the Gild, first Gilded Age began. Uh, I, I suppose that's more of a great man theory of history than, than hoping that some change comes from the bottom up. Uh, yes, I think the, um, they certainly, uh, Teddy Roosevelt and then his fifth cousin, uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt, uh, certainly helped propel uh, the great move of the pen pendulum. But it was also the muckrakers, uh, we call them investigative reporters today, uh, that reported on the doings of the, uh, the, the rapacious uh, capitalists of the Gilded Age. Uh, you know, uh, an earlier caller mentioned that today uh, CEOs are earning uh, vast sums more than they earned uh, in the 60s and 70s. When I first began uh, investigating all of this, teaching about it and uh, working in government, uh, the typical CEO of a large company earned 40 times what the typical worker earned. Today, it's 300 times. Uh, workers do not have power. There is no countervailing power. Uh, to corporate power of, we, as, of, of the sort that we are seeing in Washington and even in Sacramento. And that countervailing power is critical. Uh, uh, it was critical uh, after the Gilded Age, and it is critical now. We've got to build that back up. Well, I, that kind of throws it back on the media, I suppose. Uh, why don't we look at a few comments now? We've got Christopher writing, lawmakers in D.C. are telling the American people that passing of the so-called reconciliation bill uh, would negatively impact the current inflationary environment. More money flowing in the economy right now equals bad, right? I don't know about you, but most of us are sick and tired of being told there's nothing left for us after the rich have taken their cut. The same conversation was thrashed out before we got any stimulus, after corporations had handily had been handily bailed out, can taxing the rich, as proposed by Biden, with the wealth transfer that brings from private to public purse, aid the control of inflation. Uh, that's a lot to unpack there, I know. Uh, well, it's a lot in, uh, packed <laughs> in uh, But I, I think the, the point is that although prices are rising in response to uh, these supply shortages and bottlenecks, uh, this is not a permanent 
accelerating inflationary environment. And everybody who is worried about inflation, I understand their worries, but it is misplaced. The inflation, you know, the, the old time of, type of inflation we used to worry about was when labor unions were very strong, uh, when we had wage price inflation, uh, when inflationary expectations got built into almost every contract. Uh, those days are gone. Those days are gone. So, you know, in our closing moments, do you have uh, advice to somebody who is is perhaps struggling, may, may not be in a position where uh, he or she or they can can step away from from work, uh, but but wants to wants to I don't want to say get ahead, you know, build a decent life for themselves in this current context with with so many questions about power differentials yet to be answered in Washington, D.C.? Rachel, uh, there is no formula here. I I think that the uh, the old axiom about getting an education is is certainly true today. It's certainly as true today as it was 10 or 15 or 20 years ago. And if you can get a college degree, fine. Uh, But it seems inappropriate to live in a society Uh, in which everybody has to get a college degree in order to succeed or join the middle class. Uh, And that's where uh, I think technical education, community colleges, and also businesses that are offering the equivalent of internships and apprenticeships uh, really do come in. I mean, we've got to, as a society, uh, bring more people into the circle of prosperity. Uh, We cannot have Uh, a system in which we have a handful, really a handful of billionaires uh, who over the course of the pandemic increased their wealth by, well, what was it? $2.1 trillion. Uh, And, you know, we're we're talking about Biden's plan that is now under $2 trillion. It's been whittled back. Uh, So our 750 billionaires in this country increased their fortunes by more than Biden is now trying to push a plan that would help most workers and most people in this country. Uh, It's absurd. Uh, And uh, as I've said before, and I said just over this, the course of this hour, it's not sustainable. It's Uh, not sustainable. We have to leave it there. Robert Reich, thank you so much for talking with us today. Well, thank you, Rachel. Forum is produced by Tina Lauerberg, Susan Britton, Ariana Prail, Blanca Torres, and Grace Wan. Judy Campbell is lead producer for the 9 o'clock hour. Our engineers are Danny Bringer, Katie McMurrant, Brendan Willard, and Chris Hoff. Our interns are Kimia Akbare and Jennifer Ng. Our executive editor is Ethan Tovin Lindsay, and our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Rachel Myro, in for Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned. Tune for another hour of Forum Ahead with guest host Leslie McClure. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation.
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.